Well, good morning. It is uh, so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome. As you make your way back to your seat, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians. Um, and before we get into the Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Um, urgent prayer request. Um, I think a month ago, maybe, we prayed for Steve Bonin, uh, who had cancer, or still has cancer. And so the latest update, um, he's not doing good, in and out of hospital, fluid on his lungs. Um, they're trying to stabilize him just so that he can um, continue with chemotherapy. Um, so can we lift up right now? Let's pray for Steve Bonin, pray for Karen as she's uh, the caregiver, and just feels like it's happened so fast. Uh, so let's, let's lift the family up. Our gracious Heavenly Father, you are the great physician. You are the only one that can heal, truly, not just the body, but also the soul. And Lord, we give Steve over to you, and we ask that you would do an incredible work, that you would heal him, not just physically, but also spiritually. That you would strengthen Karen as she ministers to him, that you would provide for them peace, knowing that this is from you and it is for their good and for your glory. Help them to trust you in the midst of us. And Lord, we believe that you can do incredible things. You have created everything through a word and through a word you can heal. So may you heal him, Lord. In Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for us as a church as, as we open up your word. Can you reveal truth to us, Lord, as we talk about the role of men and women um, that seems so countercultural, that's almost hate speech in our culture today, and yet it is your truth. So can you give us clarity? Can you help us to, to tackle this passage with charity and humility? Um, may we laugh a little bit, but may we also get offended a little bit, and may your word just really speak to us. May it convict us, and Lord, help us to, at the end of the day, look at you and trust you. So come, Lord, and speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been following us in the letter to the Corinthians, you kind of know what passage we're going to be in. Uh, so Paul right now in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, is going to address the seventh of ten big issues, that of wearing head coverings, okay? Now, normally when study scripture, um, sometimes it is helpful for us to, under, uh, to understand the passage. We kind of need to understand the historical, cultural context to kind of better understand the passage. However, when we get to this passage, we cannot understand the passage without understanding the historical, cultural context. Because the fact that I'm just bringing up head coverings all these questions come to mind, like what in the world is head coverings? What do they mean? Why is head coverings such a big deal? And what does it have to do with us in the 21st century? And so in order for us to really understand this passage, we must ask ourselves one important question. What did head coverings communicate in the first century Greco-Roman culture? Because again, who's Paul writing to? The church of Corinth, they find themselves in the first century Greco-Roman culture, and he's addressing head coverings. So here's what we're going to do. 
We're going to do a little background study. We're going to study the passage. Um, We're going to laugh a little bit, appropriately, of course. We're going to offend you a little bit, because I do think like this passage today, if we translate it into the 21st century culture, um, it might be considered as hate speech, so we're going to deal with it charitably, but we're also not going to kind of shift away from it. So that's our game plan, okay? So let's have fun, let's get in the passage, and let's not uh, get too offended too bad, okay? So, so here's a little bit of a cultural context, because the question we have to answer, ask ourselves, is what did head coverings mean in the, 21st, in the, in the first century? Greco-Roman culture, okay? So in order for us to understand that, we kind of have to look behind the Bible because the Bible doesn't give it to us. Um, if you have a good study Bible, maybe it will give you a little bit of the background. Um, so, But I had to find a scholar. His name is Bruce Winters, and he is a New Testament scholar, but he specializes in first century Greco-Roman culture. And so he has a, a theory and kind of a reason and argument what head coverings meant. And obviously some scholars disagree with him, but I just thought he was the most helpful, made the most sense. And so I'm just going to present it to you saying, okay, here is head coverings. So he approaches head coverings two ways. What head coverings meant for men and what head coverings meant for women. So let's talk about the men first. What did head coverings mean for the men? Um, During the pagan religious ceremonies, priests, Roman men with high social status, aka they had a lot of money, important jobs, they would buy these fancy Roman robes. They're called a weird name. I'm not going to even try to pronounce it. And then when they would go in the procession and the ceremony and lead and prayer and offer the sacrifice, they would take these fa- fancy Roman robes and they would cover their heads in it. And so what these, uh, these Roman robes symbolized was really that of a high social status because these robes were expensive. And the fancier your robe was, the more money you had. It's kind of like graduation and these sashes, like the more stripes and lines you have on your sashes, the better student you are. And everybody would see all the walking graduation students. Oh, here's the kid just with the one sash. Here's the kid with 10 sashes. He's clearly the smartest kid in the class. That's what these Roman robes meant. So more than likely what was happening, that kind of idea, that mindset started infiltrating the corporate worship of the church in Corinth, where some of the men had tons of money. They had these Roman robes. And so when it came to leading in time of prayer and leading in time of sharing the the word of God, they would bring these robes, they would cover their heads, and they would lead in prayer, and they would lead in the proclamation of the word of God. But here's the problem. What were the people thinking in the audience? They weren't thinking about how great Christ is, but they were thinking about what? That dude's got some money. Look at that fancy rope. And that could also maybe indicate for those who were poor who had no money, probably thinking, well, I guess I'll never lead in prayer. I guess I'll never share the word of God uh, in corporate worship. Why? Because I don't have that fancy robe, which means you must have that fancy robe in order to lead. And so those who were poor now were kind of outcasts, were not allowed to participate in corporate worship. Understand that for men? Everybody's on the same page? Okay, good. Women. Women covering their heads. A, a woman in the first century Greco-Roman culture, covering her head socially implied that she was married. 
And so when she covered her head with a thin scarf or a thin veil, it kind of represented modesty and faithfulness to her husband saying, I am married to him and it brings honor to the husband. And it's something that she would wear publicly. However, in the Roman world, a new kind of wife was emerging. Um, It's kind of funny. We think we invented feminism. No, we didn't. Feminism has always existed. Because here's what happened in in the Roman culture. Women started rallying and started rebelling against the old status quo. Because in the Roman culture, husbands were allowed to be unfaithful and have extra wives and extra girls to the side. Women were not. So the women would be punished by law if they found themselves to be unfaithful by their heads being shaved, while men just get away with it. Talk about double standards. So what did the women do? In rebelling towards the cultural norm, they said, you know what? I'm not going to wear my veil anymore. And by not wearing her veil, she publicly dishonors her husband and also promotes a life of promiscuity. And so what happened when the church of Corinth started gathering in worship and women started taking their, 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 um, their head coverings off? They weren't promoting Christ, but they were promoting rebellion. They were promoting a life of promiscuity and publicly dishonoring her husband. So men wore head coverings to promote their social elite status And women wore head coverings to flaunt their rebellion against the system and to flaunt their life of promiscuity. And so what Paul is going to do is he is going to address men and saying, stop wearing your head coverings because you're promoting yourself and not promoting Christ. And he's going to address women and say, start wearing your head coverings so that you may publicly honor your husband. And then he is going to give them reasons why they shouldn't. Okay, everybody understands the background. Uh, Let's get into the text and let's start getting offended by God's word and get in tons of trouble. You ready? I'm I'm just giving you warnings here. Okay, verse 2 says this. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold fast to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. Uh, Let's stop there, because there's an important truth here. Um, If you notice, in some of your translations, it's going to say, instead of man, it's going to say husband, or instead of woman, it's going to say wife. Um, The Greek word for both uh, husband and man, or for both uh, wife and woman, is the same. They can be used interchangeably. So is it a husband? Is it a man? Is it a wife? Is it a woman? Um, The context will really determine which one it is. And I think because of the context, I do think the ESV is correct in translating it as husband and wife. Because again, who were wearing the head coverings? Wives were. So I do think he's kind of addressing um, husband and wife here. But here's a main truth that Paul is communicating a main principle that we need to understand before we can kind of move on into the text. And so if you're taking notes, here's this main truth uh, before we uh, address head coverings is this. The husband-wife relationship reflects the father-son relationship regarding roles, submission, and authority. Okay? 
So the husband-wife relationship reflects the relationship between the God the Father and God the Son regarding roles, submission, and authority. Here's where we're going to get in trouble, okay? One of our, as a church, Forest Park, one of our theological distinctions And what I mean by distinctions is this is what we believe the Bible teaches that might be different to other churches. So not only is it a theological distinction, it makes us different than other churches, but it's also a theological conviction. In other words, it's not a fundamental truth, a heaven-hell issue, but it is an issue that we are convicted by. And one of the convictions we have as a church is we are proudly unapologetically complementarians. So you're like, okay, what is that big word? What does complementarians mean? Okay. Complementarians means that we believe that both men and women are made in the image of God, which means they are equal in value, in worth, and in dignity. So for the kids that are here, that means boys are not better than girls, Girls are not better than boys. Why? Because both boys and both girls have been made in the image of God. They're equal in value, dignity, and worth. But as complementarians, we affirm, yes, men and women are equal. Image bearers, same dignity, same value, same worth. However, Men and women are distinct in roles, submission, and authority. The role for a husband and a wife are distinct. They're not one and the same role. And yet these roles complement one another. When it comes to authority, a woman and a, a husband and a wife do not have the same authority. A man, a husband has authority over the wife, and yet their authority do not clash against one another, complements one another. And we live in a culture, an egalitarian culture in a sense that's trying to promote that yes, men and women are equal in everything, which means they have the same roles and the same authority and the same submission. But here's my problem with it. I don't think the Bible teaches that. And here is why. Because of this passage. Look at verse 3 again. Look at it. It says, but I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of the woman. And God is the head of Christ. You see, what drives our theological conviction is this truth. That the husband-wife relationship reflects God the Father, God the Son relationship. And let, 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 me, let, let me talk about God the Father, God the Son first, okay? God the Father, God the Son are, equal, are equally God. They're equal in essence and value. In other words, real simple, is God the Father God? Yes, He is. Is God the Son God? Yes, He is. Is God the Father more God than God the Son? No, is God the Son any less God than God the Father? Well, if they are, we're in trouble. No, they are not. They are equally God. Yet, we see throughout Scripture, the Son submits to the Father. 
But the father never submits to the son. Repeatedly, Jesus walks on this earth. And what does he say? I have come to do my father's will. Yeah. In the garden of Gethsemane, what did Jesus pray? Not my will, but your will be done. Nowhere in scripture do you see the father submitting to the son's will. It's not a mutual submission to each other's will, but rather the son submitting to the father's will. Now, does that make Jesus any less God than God the Father? No, it doesn't. They also, difference in authority. And I know I'm kind of skirting the line, but I think scripture is clear. We see God the Father giving Jesus, God the Son, authority. Matthew 28, verse 18, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In other words, where did he get that authority? God did. God the Father gave him that authority. This is why Paul says in verse 3, And God is the head of Jesus. And Jesus is the head of the church, of man. Now, does that mean Jesus didn't have any authority? No, because we look in Colossians where it talks about the supremacy of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For everything was created in him, by him, and through him, and for him. All things in him, all things hold together. He's the firstborn from the dead, the head over the church. So it doesn't take anything away from God the, the, the Son. We also see um, God the Father and God the Son sharing in different roles. God the Father sent God the Son. So in other words, God the Father initiated our salvation by sending the Son. Did the Son send the Father? Did the Father die for us on the cross? No, the Father sent the Son. The Son accomplished our salvation by dying on the cross for us. And so as both God the Father and Son are equal, equally God, yet there is a distinction between role, submission, and authority. And this does not make the Son any inferior to the Father, nor the Father superior to the Son. If that is true for God the Father and God the Son, that is true for the role of men and women. We're equal in a sense that all of us have been made in the image of God, so we have the same value, the same worth, the same dignity, and yet there is a distinction between role, submission, and authority. A wife submits to a husband. Why? Because Paul says, because he is the head of the wife. He has authority over her. Does that make her inferior? No, it doesn't. Just because there are different roles for the husband and wife does not make one superior and one inferior. Just because the husband has authority over his wife does not take away from the dignity and worth of a wife. Why? Because the relationship between the husband and the wife reflects the relationship between the father and the son. And this is why we are complementarians. Now that we understand that truth, now we can go to the main instruction that Paul gives regarding head covering. So let's look at verse 4 here. It says this, Every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since this is one and the same as shaving, as having her head shaved 
For if a woman doesn't cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or head shaved, let her head be covered. So, 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 so here's basically what Paul is doing. He's writing to the church of Corinth, and he says, look, guys, when you are gathering in corporate worship, man, when you're praying, when you're prophesying, and the idea of prophesying is not predicting the future, but rather proclaiming the word of God. He says, man, husbands, when you are leading in prayer, when you're leading and proclaiming the word of God, do not cover your heads. Keep your heads uncovered. Why? Because what did the covering communicate? It communicated social elitism. It was flaunting wealth and social status. It was taking away from Jesus Christ. And what is the purpose for a man leading in prayer and for a man to proclaim God's word? To exalt himself and draw attention to himself or to exalt Christ and draw attention to Christ? And by them wearing head coverings, they were drawing attention to themselves rather than that to Christ. And Paul says, don't do it. Christ is your head. He has authority over you. And your job in the leading of prayer and in the proclamation of God's word is to exalt Christ. And then he dresses the wife. Woman, cover your heads. Why? Because the women of that day in the first century Greek and Roman culture, when they uncovered their heads, purposefully dishonored their husbands in public. And they flaunted their rebellion and promiscuous lifestyle. And what is their job? To honor their husbands. Because when they honor their husbands, at the end of the day, who were they ultimately honoring? God. So here's the first reason why women should cover their heads. If you're taking notes, here's the first reason. Because it is culturally shameful. It is culturally shameful. Paul says this. The act of a woman uncovering her head is as good as them shaving their head. Now, again, which culture did did Paul write this to? First century Roman culture. In our culture, it's not a big deal women shaving their head. It's not a big deal women wearing short hair. It's not a big deal. It doesn't communicate anything. But according to Roman law, when a woman was found in an adulterous relationship, what would happen to that woman is her head would be shaved, and it would be a symbol of shame that she would walk until her hair grows back. That's what it communicated. And what Paul is saying is by you uncovering your head, you're basically shaving your head. You're bringing shame on yourself. It is culturally shameful. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, that's kind of weird. Like, why does Paul care about what culture thinks? Like, like why does culture matter in a sense. And I think the reason why Paul says culture matters in one sense because we live in a culture and certain things communicate certain things. Correct? But what communicates in one culture might not communicate in another culture. So, so for example, here's a little say example. You might see me walking around with a Speedo on the beaches of Europe and Africa. Most of you probably don't know what a Speedo is. 
but you're not going to see me walk on the beaches of America in a Speedo. Why? It's weird. Don't do that. Okay? You're not going to see men in the U.S. walking around with rompers, but in Australia when they're wrestling crocodiles and snakes, what do they do? Rompers. It's culturally acceptable. So there are certain things that are culturally acceptable in one culture, but not in another. And I had to learn really fast what I can do back in my own country, what I really can't do here. Words I can say back there that is culturally acceptable, words I can't say here. Clothes I can wear back there, that's cool. Not here. You're not going to find it online, that picture of me in a Speedo. So let's move on here. So what Paul is saying is culture in one way or another matters. Okay? Here's the second reason. Look, 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 look at verse 7. A man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So too, woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. So what does Paul say? The second reason of why a man should cover his head and a wife should uncover his head and a wife should cover her head because it, if you're taking notes, it contradicts how God designed men and women. It contradicts how God designed men and women. Here's the main issue that Paul's addressing in this passage. It is not the nature of men and women in general but specifically how a man honors Christ and how a wife honors her husband. That's the kind of idea that Paul goes to. How does a man honor Christ and how does a woman honor her husband? And Paul supports that statement by going back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 to 23. He says, where did women come from? Women came from a man, not vice versa. God created a woman for man, not vice versa. That means women is the glory of man and honors her husband as her authority. That is how God designed it. Proverbs 12 verse 4 says, An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bone. What was the symbol of authority in the first century Greco-Roman culture? How did a, a, a woman submit to her, her man, her husband? By wearing the head coverings. By showing that she is under his authority. And that's how she honored him. That's not what that looks like in the 21st century. So you can relax, women. We're not going to make you wear head coverings. So, so I was trying to think, like, like what is the symbol of, of authority, of submitting to, 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 your, to your husband? The, the closest one I could come up with was the wedding ring. If my wife purposefully refuses to wear her wedding ring, what is she communicating? I don't want to be married to this man. I don't want to honor him. I don't want to submit to him. It's a symbol of the covenant that we've entered into. And Paul says, look at God's design 
for men and for women. And now I know it's easy for us because look at, like, can you imagine we read this in um, a, uh, a secular context? I think that's considered hate speech, um, especially the first couple verses where it's like, women, you were created for man, you came from man, not vice versa. And it's easy for us to fall in the trap. Yeah, that's why men are better than women. But, 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 but Paul says, no, that does not make them inferior. Because look at verse 11, look at verse 12. In the Lord, however, a woman is not independent of man, and a man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes from woman, and all things come from God. In other words, men, women, you need each other. You are interdependent. Neither of you can exist without the other. You will die. You will. And yet, God has a design for both man and for woman, for both husband and wife. Paul offers the last reason. Look, look, look at verse 13. It says this, Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering? If anyone wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. So here's the, the, here's the third reason. So the first reason is culturally shameful. The second reason, God's design for men and women. And the third reason is Paul is appealing to, to nature. So what does he mean by nature? Is he appealing to like the birds and the bees and the flowers and the plants? No, he's not appealing to that. But rather when he talks about nature, he's talking about the regular established order. And Paul bases his appeal on nature, both on a creation principle and a cultural practice, okay? So he says, men, no head coverings, no long hair. Women, head coverings, long hair, glory. Why? Because it is the natural order of things. And he bases it on creation and culture. Here's the creation element. Basically what he is saying in the creation element, men... Look and act like men. Women, look and act like women. That's what he is saying. How did God create you? God created you to be a man. So what do you need to do, men? Look and act like one. Women, God created you to be a woman. What are you supposed to be? Look and act like one. But here is now the second element. That's God's design. That's the creation principle. What does that look like in dress and in behavior for a man to act like a man and for a woman to act like a woman? Now it's the cultural practice. Now, if you look at this, he says this in verse 14. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Now, it's easy for us to say, see, this is why men shouldn't have long hair because Paul says it's a disgrace. But again, who did Paul write to? Paul wrote to the first century in the Roman Greco culture. And in the Roman Greco culture, thank the Lord for them, I'm just kidding. Um, they believe men 
did not wear long hair, but wore short hair, and for men to wear long hair was to be and act like a woman. Now, is that true for all cultures across all times? No, because I think of a really bad dude in the Bible who his, an angel appeared to his parents and they told them, hey, don't, don't cut your son's hair. He's a Nazarite from the beginning. And the last time I checked, I think he took a lion and destroyed it with his bare, hones, uh, bare hands and he, he took a, a jawbone of a donkey and killed how many Philistines? Anybody know his name? Samson? Yeah. The dude had long hair. Was he a man? Yeah, he was a man, okay? So that's not true for all cultures. But was it true for the Greco-Roman culture and for the church of Corinth? Yes, it was. I can think of other cultures where man buns are in, if you're a samurai in Japan. Here, it's borderline questionable. I'm sorry. Uh, let me move on. I'm going to get myself in trouble here. Here's the dangers we can come in. is taking what Paul says and making blanket truths. What's the number one truth when it comes to appealing to nature? God created men and women to act and look like men and women. In the culture that Paul was writing to, men did not have long hair. To have long hair was to act like a woman. So for us, maybe a simple application is, what does it look like for a man to act like a man? Don't wear makeup and lipstick or wear a dress. Like, I think that's borderline acceptable, right? Like, I think all of us can agree to that. The long hair, that's debatable. The man bun, that's debatable. The romper, that's kind of getting close to dangerous, okay? <laughs> but it all depends on our culture. Here, men don't wear Speedos or beaches because that's not manly. But in Europe, they wear it loud and proud. That's their culture. That's what a man does. And that's the point that Paul is making. So, so how are we going to come up with some wonderful applications? Because what does head coverings have to do with us? I think the very first application is a very easy one. When you participate in a worship service, if you're taking notes, dress in a culturally appropriate way. Is that, that's pretty easy, right? Like, like for Paul, in the culture that it was in, writing it to the church of Corinth, it was scandalous for a Christian man to wear a head coverings and for a Christian wife not to wear it. Because one dishonored Christ by flaunting themselves and their wealth, and the other one was dishonoring their husband by flaunting their rebellion and their promiscuity. And so Paul says, men... Take off those head coverings. Women wear those head coverings because of what it communicates. It is not culturally appropriate. So for us, what do you wear to church? Something that is culturally appropriate. Something that is not going to distract. So the reason I dress the way I dress, because it's me, it's culturally appropriate, and it does not extract, distract. Why? Because if I wear something goofy and I show up with a romper and some uh, knee-high socks and boots, what are you going to think? What's wrong with this dude? Then I can proclaim Christ, but guess what? You're going to keep looking at my romper saying, I don't do that. My job is to exalt Christ. So how do we wear to church appropriately? 
whatever is culturally acceptable. Let's not come up with rules and, and different models and rulers and all of this. this is it. Let's not get there. What is acceptable in our culture and what honors Christ and what honors husbands and wives? Here's the second one, and I think here's one's the more, more touchy one, and I think this is the one we really need to spend time with. If you're taking notes, is this. We need to show that God's design for husbands and wives is beautiful. This is a big one. We need, like, like, like even me, like as I was preparing my sermon, like I was cringing the whole time saying, man, this is so culturally unacceptable, some of the things we just said. Like it is hateful. Like when, if we had to tell our culture of the role of men and women, what would they call us? Sexist, traditional, patriarchal. And what is the church doing? We're kind of backtracking. We're kind of excusing. Well, you know, uh, it's like, stop it. We need to show that the role in the design for men and women is a beautiful design that God has given us. But we can also admit that God's great design has been tarnished and impacted by sin. Like that, that's just the reality of it. When God created man and women, he made them equal in dignity, worth, and value, but then he made them different. He gave them different roles. He put an authority and a submission in place. Why are we making excuses for it? Here's what's happening in our culture, and you're going to notice this. Like, like we've been fighting our culture, the, the culture of, uh, of sexes and feminism and, 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 and manhood. Like, we've been fighting so hard for equality and with the feminist movement saying, you know, men and women are equal. We can do the same job and the same pay and the same role. Why should women do this? Why? Men can be doing this equal, equal, equal. And so finally, women, you got your equality, and guess what's happening right now? You're losing your equality because now we have the whole transgender issue coming along. And here's what's happening. The only way for men and women to flourish is under God's good design. When you take God's good design out of place, guess who suffers? Women and children. We as a church should show the world how beautiful God's design is. And we all have a different role in that. Husbands, let me talk to you first. You are the head of your wife. What does that mean? You have authority over her. But what does that mean for you? You need to love her, care for her, Provide for her as if Peter says, as if she's the weaker vessel, as if she is fragile. Don't domineer over her. Do not abuse her. Protect her, love her, and cherish her. Wife, you're responsible for submitting to your husband, not begrudgingly, but gladly following your husband. And here's what we need to understand. Now let me point you to Christ here. In both roles, men and women, husband, wife, guess who we look to as the ultimate example? We look to Jesus Christ. Husbands, you want to see a real man? 
look to Jesus. What did Jesus do for his bride? He died for her. He gave his body up for her. He paid with his precious blood for her. Paul says in Ephesians, and what is he committed to? He is committed in perfecting her and washing her with the word. In other words, he loves his bride so much that he gives up himself for her, that he is completely committed and keep making her, presenting her perfect before God and continually washing her and sanctifying her by his word. So what are you supposed to be doing when it comes to your wife you are supposed to love her so much that you lay down your life for her and you are committed and presenting her perfect before Jesus Christ and washing her with the word that is the role that is the assignment that God has given you and you start by doing it by becoming a man looking and acting like a man that looks to Jesus Christ that is what he's called you to do quit rolling over Quit being an Adam and being passive and not caring. Roll up your sleeves. Get going. Quit hiding in your man cave and become a man and take care of your wife and your children and love them and lay down your life for them. Quit open, start opening up the word and watching your wife with the word and your children with the word. That's the assignment he's given you. And wives, what do you do? You look to Christ. Think about the example that Christ has did. What did Christ do? He submitted to the Father's will, even to the point of death. What do you do? You honor your husband, you submit to your husband as you look to Christ's example. Because guess what? At the end of the day, I'm not gonna give you a pass. Okay, maybe your husband is a knucklehead and he's not worthy of following. But let me tell you this. By you submitting to your husband and following your husband, who are you ultimately submitting to and following? Follow Christ. So let's say, for example, your husband is a knucklehead. Then submit to Christ. Because guess what? Who is a way better man than your husband will ever be? Christ. He is your ultimate husband. And he in his word says, I am so committed to you that I bought you with my precious blood and I'm going to perfect you and I'm going to constantly wash you with my word. So yes, at times, I will admit, it is hard for you women to submit to your man because they are not acting the way they're supposed to act. That does not give you an excuse. Because when you submit, you're ultimately submitting to Jesus Christ. And just like the beauty with the triune God, between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, living in perfect harmony and unity and our same Godness and yet distinct role, submission, authority, that was God's design for us. Let's reclaim it. Let us show the world how beautiful and how perfect God designed us. And here's why we can do it. Not because we know better, 
but because we ourselves have been redeemed. We've been set free from the bondages of sin. Sin has no hold over us. Our eyes have been opened to see God's beautiful design as the intelligent creator, the architect, the artist that has put everything together. And let us show the world, look how good our God is. Let's stop making excuses. Let's stop conforming to our culture and say no. This is what a biblical man is. This is what a biblical woman is. And let's look to Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, help us. Lord, we live in a culture where we are so confused what a man is, what a man looks like, what a woman is, what a woman looks like. It seems like in our culture, everybody is determining their own truth, trying to figure out their own identity, and the identity that they figure out is the God they bow down to, and Lord, what chaos. And Lord, we find ourselves in this culture. We can't avoid it. It's teaching our children what men and women are. It's teaching us what men and women do. Can you help us not to be influenced by our culture, but help us to look to your word? Can you help us to recapture biblical manhood and biblical womanhood? Can you help us to show the world your good design for a husband and wife? And Lord, I pray for the husbands. Can you help us to lay down our lives for our wives and for our children? Can you help us to become the greatest servants where we roll up our sleeves and we're committed in perfecting them and loving them and washing them with your word? And Lord, can you help our wives, can you help our women to submit to the authority of their husbands, even though at times it's hard, but help them to keep their eyes on you because they're ultimately submitting to you. And Lord, encourage them that you are the better husband their husbands would ever be. Lord, can you do an incredible work in our marriages? Can you provide healing? Can you convict us? As we continue to pray, before we get to the table, real quick, I just want to give you guys a couple questions just to meditate on. Um, Men, do you understand what it means to act and look like a man? Like, are you husbands, are you loving your wives? Are you surrendering your life to them? Are you sacrificing? Are you committed in perfecting her and washing her with the word. And some of you kids, boys, you're not married, but are you looking at women and you're seeing them as God's beautiful creation, as fragile, and you honor them and treat them by opening up the door for them and using manners? Are you looking at parents and respecting them and looking them in the eye, giving them a firm handshake, acknowledging that they have authority over you. And women, are you submitting to your husband as you're ultimately submitting to Christ? Are you content that the Lord has designed and created you to be a woman that has dignity and value and worth, that is beautiful, that has a purpose, or are you trying to achieve an identity or something to find worth somewhere else?